It's so recorded. I did audio rather than visual. You won't be on candid camera. <laughs> right um, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't inflict that on anybody. Um, right. Um, yeah, the um, title of the talk has a question mark in it because um, I, I've given this all many times and uh, the circumstances seem to uh, change and change my mind in relation to the subject matter. And also because I hope that in the certainly sort of question the session, um, you'll be sort of um, at least as leading um, as I am with the sort of suggestions about the connections between them. I've got certain uh, suggestions to make during the content of the first part, but uh, that doesn't preclude you um, engaging with the general topic of the relationship between philosophy and politics uh, on any basis that uh, might occur to you. Um, the first part is a brief sort of review of the situation in uh, Germany uh, in the period of 1933 to 34. Um, this was a period in which academics were being appointed by the uh, Nazi government, and so there was a question of the relationship between academics, particularly, of course, in this case, philosophers, and um, the uh, politics as it was currently practice. Um, I've given people a handout and I know that others will come in late and won't have copies of it. We can arrange that perhaps sort of in the break or certainly by the end, but if you don't mind sharing, if you possibly can, bring yourselves to look over each other's um, notes, that would be great. Um, you don't need to, but if you want to see, try to, that would be the best way of doing it. Um, before I go through the quotes, which is the first part of the um, of the um, sequence of handouts. I just want to read out something which um, is said by Alfred Bungler, who is the first uh, quoted uh, philosopher here, um, on going through the process of denazification, as all uh, academics viewed as um, problematically related to the um, now sort of defunct regime had to do. Um, this is what he said, and I think it's quite relevant. Uh, perhaps to where we are today. Um, he said he was, um, this is in 1948, he's talking, but he'd been led towards Nazism, National Socialism as an ethos, uh, by the disastrous course of party politics, which then followed, that made him completely disoriented. And of course, in the recent weeks, we've seen a certain amount of disorientation leading towards people being kind of uh, out of sorts with traditional party politics. So um, some of these issues, at least, are not uh, simply matters of historical record. They are um, problems that we continue to face. Um, so Alfred Bandler first, then, uh, this is the quote from his um, inaugural lecture. Um, he takes up the chair of philosophy, and actually it's political pedagogy, I missed political at Berlin University. Um, that, of course, is the sort of most important chair in philosophy, that's the one that people would probably aspire to as a kind of mark of their prestige. Um, Heidegger had been offered that job and turned it down, so it's not as if Heidegger is sort of stuck out in Freiburg and being kind of uh, marginalised, he, he, he sort of could have been in that position. Um, Bandler gave this talk on May the 10th, uh, 1933. The significance of that is that having finished the talk, he led his students to um, take part in the burning of books in um, 
the cathedral square in Berlin. Um, so this is an extremely charged atmosphere in which he's delivering his talk. Um, and, um, he thinks that his task is to draw the picture of um, a political, that's to say, real man, not to engage in politics from this academic chair. So he still, um, although he's regarded as a kind of radical, sort of, uh, in some way, sort of sympathizer with national socialism, um, he is at this stage still maintaining that the university has some separate and valuable existence apart from uh, as an organ of the state. Um, not all three, as you'll see, have that same view. Um, I'll put in place of the neo-humanist picture of man, the true picture of political man. I will newly define the relation of theory to practice. I'll describe the orders of life in which we actually live. So the setting of the university, although it's not dictated entirely by the sort of um, requirements of the state, is nevertheless a part of the society um, which is led by the state, and so will um, and, and must reflect that. So um, it's a recognition that under conditions of national socialism, the role of the university will be different because the society that national socialism engaged in, is engaged in uh, the production of um, will be a different society. It will have different values, will have different um, norms, codes of behaviour, and what have you. Um, the second character, I mean, but Bandra, I should say at this point, is a, um, a very sort of cultured man. His background is in history of art and Kant's aesthetics, that's what he's very famous for. And he, um, uh, somebody who, who uh, in some ways came to national socialism via fascism. He was already inclined towards fascism. Um, and the particular sort of variety of it which he found himself in uh, conjunction with was as it happens, national socialism, but you can imagine as a background that he would be uh, equally sort of to that far right in most of the kind of European um, countries at that time. Um, Ernst Kreik, who is not um, really sort of in that position, um, was an incredibly recent um, appointment as a lecturer at the University of Frankfurt, also a very important um, higher education institution in Germany. Um, he only just been appointed as a chair in philosophy, um, so he, his sort of ascendancy was kind of uh, meteoric. But that was against the background of having really struggled to establish himself in um, a period of nearly 25 years working in education, uh, and his background was in philosophy of education as an academic. Um, he uh, was from a very sort of poor background, black forest sort of peasants, first person in his family to go to university. Um, so it was for Martin Heidegger too. And um, Craig's sort of view is that the relationship between the sort of, I suppose, the sort of senior management of the institution um, is, is a relationship between senior management and its workers. And he was very sort of keen on the idea that, that in some sense what this is going to be is a kind of an exercise in reconstituting kind of our understanding of ourselves in terms not of, say, the liberal individual, but instead in terms of the folkish um, practices and traditions which constitute, he would say, the kind of true nature of, in this case, Germans, but would also want to say the same thing for other countries. So, um, each field should be able to produce a new philosophy from its own problems and tasks, a philosophy under which the multiplicity of individual disciplines is gathered meaningfully together as under the dome of a cathedral. So all the 
disparate topics which constitute academic kind of um, institutional practice and discourse will be um, all sort of recast in terms of a single unified understanding. That understanding will be the folkish traditions um, that constitute the sort of German people in their essence. Um, in this way, it would be possible to establish a unity of purpose for all scientific work across the barriers of the academic fields and to bring about the interweaving of all details into the total worldview. So it's very different, or similar to Bauman in some ways, uh, and both of them share this very different view of the nature of education in general, higher education in particular, in relation to their responsibilities to the state and to the people who are um, in the state. Um, the problems that he regards as sort of ongoing and, and, and you know, deep are um, you know, connected to uh, the potential failure of this project. Um, if the generation fails, then the German future will be lost once and for all. The German people as a whole and every single member of our people facing this hour of destiny the question whether they will stand the test. We're crossing the great threshold. So, it's, uh, again, a sort of sense of significance of the events, these are wide-ranging changes that are needed, in all their views, by um, the problems that have been caused by the way in which um, society has been constituted up until this point. That would be something that we could recognise, <laughs> broadly speaking, as liberal and, to some extent, democratic. The um, sense of change here is from something which has, uh, if you like, lost its way and has produced a sort of emptiness at the heart of, in this case, uh, Germany, and something that's going to reconnect people with their sort of sense of their identity as Germans. Um, Martin Heidegger, the final um, person quoted here, as you can see, giving his talk only four days later, I think right, um, uh, arguably, of all the three of them, uh, the most <coughs> significant philosopher, and not necessarily the most um, uh, committed, sort of uh, active member of the National Social Party at this day, but the most famous philosopher um, uh, is uh, giving his talk, um, as I said, at Freiburg rather than Berlin, having opted to remain in Freiburg. Um, he disliked urban environments generally, so it was incompatible, he thought, with, with his um, way of thinking um, and writing. Uh, in fact, he did all his writing in a um, in a um, woodsman's hut in the Black Forest. Uh, and if you uh, go to YouTube and Google it, you will find that, um, it's, that there is a kind of interesting sort of um, wander around that cottage um, conducted by his son, or one of his sons. Um, but this is what Heidegger says about the problems that, that are being faced politically and how we respond to them. Um, uh, a nation's spiritual world is primordially attuned knowing resolute openness to the nature of being. Thus, the will to the historical mandate of the German people as a nation, knowing itself in its state, is a will to science. So, something similar to what Quaid is saying, but in language that is uniquely highly his own, um, that this is something which uh, needs to happen because we are in a sort of problematic situation in regard to how we think about ourselves, how we act, and how <coughs> we judge our, sort of, um, our relations to the state. Um, out of this resolute openness the German students to face the German destiny in its greatest need comes a will to the essence of the university 
which from now on will be rooted into the student's life through labour service, honour which in future will permeate the student's whole life as military service, and service to knowledge. So these three are just elements of what's involved in being German. Um, in this case, what's involving uh, being a student too. Um, but all of them are sublimated to the sort of single relation um, organised in terms of um, the Führer principle. Um, those three bonds are equally primordial in German nature. This is, in all three of their cases, they're trying to be described uh, perhaps what we might regard as a sort of general universal characterization of human uh, being in some or other way, in terms of a particular uh, uh, specific view. Um, those three bonds are equally primordial in German nature. The three services that derive from them, labor service, military service, and service to knowledge, equally are necessary and of equal rank. So uh, there is no sort of differentiation here, except at the level of sort of understanding. They are equally important. Now, why should it matter? Um, uh, the sort of way forward here is um, the um, relationship between Martin Heidegger and his engagement with uh, politics um, and uh, the sort of political thought of Hannah Arendt and uh, also Jürgen Habermas, who are to some extent uh, influenced by Heidegger, but in, in no way sort of um, agree with him about the relationship between politics and philosophy, um, which is the wider question that I want to sort of raise. Um, the, if you look to the, um, the, the letter, um, which is from the letters 1925 to 1975, it's either the last or the penultimate uh, one in your handout, I'm not sure how to relate, I think it's the penultimate one. Um, winter 1932-33 is the um, is the heading for the letter. Um, now Hannah Arendt had been um, Heidegger's lover. She was his um, student, and she um, was regarded certainly by him with um, you know, the sort of status of a pupil to to kind of follow and be guided by a senior and kind of more perhaps sort of um, experienced wise academic. So uh, he was the master, she was the pupil. And um, uh, nevertheless, because of this more complicated relationship, there is a sort of an element of sort of concern over and above the relationship of master and pupil uh, in the way in which she's sort of concerned about what she's hearing about the way he treated or has been sort of accused of treating. Uh, Jews within the institution. Uh, of course, he is um, by this stage as rector, um, you know, the senior academic in the institution, able because of the Fiora principle to make academic appointments without any kind of reference to anybody else. Everybody is submitted to his will, just as he and his will is submitted to the will of um, whoever it is, perhaps the Minister of Education, to whom he answers, and so on and so forth. Um, so this is him at this stage, 1932-33, so just before he takes up the lectureship, um, defending himself to uh, Aaron in a personal letter uh, against these accusations. And you'll see some of the sort of, if you like, kind of problems of this position. Um, uh, the rumors that are upsetting you are slanders that are perfect matches for other experiences I have endured over the last few years. 
You'll see this time and time again, the idea is to be fence of his relations to national security. It's, um, you know, essentially, it's poor me. Um, I can't very well exclude Jews from the seminar invitations, not least because I have not had a single seminar invitation in the last four semesters. Uh, that I supposedly don't say hello to Jews is such a malicious piece of gossip that in any case I will have to take note of it for the future. Um, then he goes on to enumerate all the facts about his relation. Uh, I'm on sabbatical this winter semester and thus in the summer after I announced well in advance I wanted to be left alone and would not be accepting projects and the like. The man who comes anyway urgently wants to write a dissertation is due. The man who comes to see me every month to report on a large work in progress uh, is also due. The man who sent me a substantial text for urgent reading a few weeks ago is a Jew. Um, the, um, the suggestion is there were people that just accepted uh, and have made sort of arguments in favour of seeking grants. Um, and so whoever wants to call that raging anti-Semitism is welcome to do so. Uh, beyond that, I know just as much an anti-Semite uh, in university as I was 10 years ago in Marburg, which is where they initially met, where because of this anti-Semitism, I even learned Jakob Stoll and Friedländer's um, support. Um, uh, for a long while I've been uh, quite withdrawn in general, not least because my work has been met by a hopeless incomprehension. Uh, also on account of some less than pleasant personal experiences that have resulted from my teaching. Um, so here he is sort of um, defending himself at the earlier stage of his involvement. Now, the main problem with uh, perhaps the sort of uh, relation that uh, comes about uh, between uh, Arendt, and, uh, Arendt and Heidegger at this stage uh, is um, that uh, he is uh, making sense of his commitment as a philosopher to the sort of current conditions of the National Socialist sort of government, albeit in a fairly new sort of stage of its kind of, uh, you know, taking its taking power, um, in terms of his own philosophical language. He doesn't, when he's talking about sort of um, desolute, um, Resolute openness, that's right. Um, when you talk about resolute openness, um, this is the kind of language that um, is familiar to anybody who's read uh, Being of Time. And I know many of you went to it, and that's why I gave you the handout that's just a very brief kind of uh, introduction to Heidegger's thought. Um, he uh, is suggesting that there's a problem with our relationship to ourselves in this modern world, which is brought about in part by a disconnection of um, thought and um, practice. The, the, our relation to our sense as um, you know, existing uh, with others in the world is one which is masked in favour of um, what he calls ultimately kind of incorrect assumptions about our separateness from each other and our sort of um, like particular kind of ways of relating to each other. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated picture he's offering, but essentially um, um, the language which is used I mean, for now it will do, um, is the relation between authenticity and inauthenticity with regard to our understanding of our existence. Um, if you want a sort of a brief example of that, um, we're encouraged perhaps increasingly to see the world as um, things that have their sort of um, interest for us in terms of how um, purposeful they are for our activities. And when they are sort of um, finished with, then they are no longer of any importance. Uh, they become sort of insignificant and meaningless. And 
this is, he thinks, a pervasive trend in um, Western civilization. Um, it's something which is tied not only to the practices of living, but also to um, practices of thought. And so um, uh, the deep relationship between these problems at the level of thought and practice are things that need to be addressed, um, precisely because what is happening is we're cutting ourselves off systematically from what gives our life meaning. We, we do, in fact, struggle increasingly things to find things to be uh, meaningful, significant, and so forth. And he uh, feels that this is something which, at this stage, the um, project which is national socialism uh, can uh, address. So it's so compelling for him, this problem, that uh, the Nazis offer something radical and different and new. And uh, this might be, you know, sort of just what is needed. Now he, at this stage, could be forgiven for sort of reading too much into the kind of possibilities of national socialism. And he does tend to kind of, um, you know, sort of talk back a little bit. But essentially, there is a kind of continuity within saying, look, um, national socialism was sort of thugs and you know has a kind of sort of problem with violence. Um, but I thought we could get beyond all that, and I thought I could help guide them into a sort of path of right thinking. Of course, and the point of giving you the sort of three philosophers from this time is to sort of show that he wasn't alone in offering a kind of a radical recasting of the role of philosophy in relation to politics, given the politics of the day. So he did competition, in a way. The, the, they, the other two have been fundamentally sort of incorrect in their assessment of the problems of uh, you know, German um, society and political life. Um, he fortunately did have the solution to those problems, which was cast in the sort of general terms of analysis of our relationship to each other and more importantly perhaps to our world, in terms of, as he calls it, being, um, which it wouldn't be too inaccurate this stage to say existence. Yeah, problems of finding things to be kind of meaningful rather than not, the ways in which we do, the ways in which we can't, and so forth. So and that's one stage. You seem to offer a sort of general solution to a sort of specific kind of um, historical um, problem. Uh, and this um, is something which Arendt has a number of um, difficulties with. Um, in fact, uh, after the war, um, when uh, Heidegger was himself sort of undergoing denazification, that involved, amongst other things, a, a ban on giving lectures of any kind. Um, writing and publication was severely curtailed, um, and um, you know, it had to essentially justify his actions to the interrogators from the Allied forces. Um, just want to draw your attention to the other, um, um, well, not, not really correspondence in this case, the relation between Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger. It's the last, I think, of the Heidegger's. Just look at the um, at the second column of text, um, starting it seems. Okay. Um, it seems, however, that Heidegger's motive for avoiding Arendt uh, might have been a, a much deeper or fundamental uh, rationale. The main concept of the origins of totalitarianism, uh, which is Arendt's sort of first, uh, well, pretty much first book, and certainly the one for which he was uh, increasingly famous about. Um, the origins of totalitarianism was most certainly uh, highly offensive to 
And to make things worse, it was a work of his own student, and of a woman who he appeared to think was still intellectually dependent on him, which is the point of the master-pupil description of the earlier relationship, and that quote from the, the letters um, that meant to, uh, meant to illustrate that. Um, in her book, Arendt um, equated national socialism, which he admired still, um, with communism, which he hated. Still worse, she undermined Heidegger's main line of defense, which is, at this stage for him, crucial to him. He's got to defend himself against the accusations that he was a compromised um, intellectual figure as a result of his well, um, collaboration or enthusiastic engagement, more likely, with the um, National Socialist regime. So, now, by equating National Socialism with Communism, Arendt called into question Heidegger's intention uh, to, um, quote, rescue the Western civilization from the dangers of Communism. Uh, the uh, suggestion is, it goes on in that um, passage to sort of um, point out the ways in which they um, differ quite sort of uh, uh, generally now in their attitudes towards each other. So, anyway, the um, point that uh, Hadness, um, sorry, the point that um, is being made in this title by Arendt at this stage is that. Um, the nature of our relation to um, politics is um, fundamentally different from our nature of uh, our relationship to philosophy. We're trying to do quite different things um, when we are um, philosophizing from uh, what we are trying to do when we're trying to uh, do politics, including, of course, thinking about politics. Um, this is best sort of illustrated, sort of, um, and you have to bear in mind this is something that she regards Heidegger as continuous with in um, Plato's sort of view of. The relationship between the philosophers and um, the rest of the populace um, that make up the state in the Republic. Um, in that book, um, and of course, Harris is claiming that Heidegger is in some sense um, consistent with that view. Um, in that book, um, the claim is that um, the um, nature of organization of the state uh, is one of um, um, organizing things for the general good. Now, um, the question then emerges, uh, who has the ability to organize the general good, um, or, or organize the state in terms of the general good? And the answer is the people who think generally about the nature of things and the relationship between people and the world and each other. And that, Plato wants to claim, uh, is a philosopher, or a particular kind of philosopher having gone through the right kind of training. Only philosophers have the general view that equips them to make appropriate judgments about the organization of things. And this is something which contrasts with how most of us, for the most part, are oriented, Plato thinks, you know, understandably at some level, which is towards um, you know, sort of as things as they occur to us. You know, we're beset by individual problems, perhaps, or family issues, or other kinds of sort of distractions which don't orientate us properly towards the general question of the nature of the good. And having orientated ourselves properly towards that, we are uniquely placed to direct other people. Now Plato suggests that this is um, a mandate for uh, the sort of involvement of philosophers at that level in the organization of the state. That's the value of philosophy um, to politics. Um, 
Now, Alex kind of holds the view that um, Heide, despite perhaps his protests, in some sense he's engaged with the media um, <coughs> of the situation in terms of national socialism. Heide repeats that mistake. He assumes that philosophers have some capacity to, to pronounce on general questions of how things are and of how things should be that others lack. Um, in the case of you know, bringing it to, to Heidegger's sort of um, uh, situation with, with the University of Freiburg, he's talking about this the way in which um, different sort of areas of human endeavour and inquiry sort of can discreetly exist from each other under different sort of assumptions about what is or is not acceptable um, within the confines of that discipline. But that's, if you like, the kind of problem that Plato had with um, leaving the organisation of the state to people who have particular forms of knowledge. You have to have the right general view in order to be equipped to organise things generally. And whether or not the individual or group, uh, or the groups that make up uh, that state, um, agree is, um, you know, at some level, neither here nor there. You know, um, they will only appreciate the correctness of the analysis having gone through the reconstitution in the light of the sort of understanding that the philosopher delivers. Now, in distinction to that, Aaron's saying that um, philosophy um, will, because of this tendency to sort of try and sort of subsume sort of particulars under general understandings, always runs the risk of um, justifying um, forms of um, wide social and political reorganisation which are incredibly damaging um, um, to um, the individuals and groups that make up that society. Um, and she thinks that um, national socialism and certainly Heidegger's view um, exactly mirrors um, that of um, the Marxists, who she's also critical of. Um, she quotes disapprovingly uh, Trotsky's claim that you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs by saying that it's what he doesn't realise and what he doesn't say is it's perfectly possible to break a few eggs without making an omelette. Um, and she's claiming that you know, that unfortunately is the sort of situation in Soviet Russia um, at that time. So um, what she's claiming instead is that um, philosophy, although it has its kind of area of expertise and and, certain, and it's certainly in terms of thinking about the sort of general conditions of living, um, philosophy is able to contribute in those ways, but, but it can never be regarded as, as the basis on which uh, a kind of complete or universal characterization of the human condition um, should generate sort of particular sort of courses of action, policies, and what have you. Um, the basic problem with uh, that view, um, she thinks, is that it fundamentally reorganizes uh, our relation to each other in terms of a kind of dependency relation to those who are sort of in the business of telling us what to do or think, uh, how to organize ourselves and so forth. Um, it's fundamentally anti-democratic, is what she's saying. And that the essence of democracy, uh, uh, sorry, the essence of politics, is the democratic interaction of people discussing as equals considerations about how we should live, how we should organize ourselves what we're trying to achieve together. Um, this is something which she feels is, is under um, threat 
uh, and this is something which she um, argues over a number of books is um, something that we need to kind of recognise that we we are uh, find ourselves sort of unhelpfully kind of relating to each other if the device by which we do that is the kind of um, supposedly sort of general correct way of viewing our world, and that's precisely what philosophers. Um, have aimed at, maybe historically, and she wants to claim these continue to do, uh, uh, up, to, up to now. Um, just briefly, because I think I'm, I'm running what, half an hour, I think, now. Um, Arendt is uh, a great influence on Jürgen Habermas, who is um, still with us, um, he's 85. And probably the most famous philosopher in, uh, in Europe. Um, Habermas has written extensively on Heidegger. He was himself, as a teenager, a member of the Hitler Youth, because everybody was, um, and understands something about the nature of the problems of that relationship of philosophy to politics. Um, he shares with um, Hannah Arendt, and I've given you a sort of very brief um, view of his main sort of lines of argument here. Um, he shares with Arendt the concern that um, what uh, if you like, the task of us as um, philosophers um, amounts to is not to give um, instruction on the general principles of understanding ourselves and our world. Um, it's not the task of philosophers to, um, to, to give the kind of complete and general big picture in terms of which everything particular is made sense of. Um, he begins actually intellectually from a sort of, himself from a kind of and that's a kind of Marxist sort of position. He rapidly sort of moves into a more sophisticated position after that. But um, the essential point is that, um, you know, in the case of Marxism, the, the requirement that every single phenomenon has to be understood ultimately in terms of class conflict <coughs> is a kind of constraint on our self understanding which is not um, warranted by the conditions of our uh, engagement with each other at any particular time. Rather, what we need to do. Things. And this is following on from that, is to establish the appropriate sort of conditions under which we can make sense of our respective claims to what the good life is um, for us all. So, um, Habermas concentrates on like the, the principles of interaction rather than the content of any decision making. He's not, and claims that philosophers can't offer substantive answers to particular political questions. They can, however, contribute a general understanding of how we can come to um, a discussion and then an agreement about what um, things should be like. In some ways, if we go back to the um, boundless sort of defense of his own activities, this sense of a kind of disconnection from the, um, the activities of politics as it's represented in mainstream political discussion and debate uh, through party systems. This is something which um, Habermas is saying is always a difficulty and danger for us, that um, insofar as we uh, are um, focused on sort of the sort of business of being told what to think in general terms, we neglect or find it much more easy institutionally, this is, to um, avoid the discussion of our um, problems and potential solutions to them. Um, so this is not you know, a matter of the, the Heidegger National Socialism case being in isolation, though it provides a useful sort of example. 
And all that we can do as philosophers is offer the correct, if you like, conditions for our understanding. Um, and then the process of gaining and coming to an understanding will be ongoing, will be changing as a result of our participation in it. And if that doesn't happen, if we have a, an increasing situation which participation is um, restricted, constrained, sort of limited in various kinds of ways, then we are in a sort of um, very sort of problematic situation. We are uh, in a situation of not finding the sort of people who take these decisions to be sort of legitimate uh, in terms of their capacity to take those decisions. We feel like it's being taken for us, and that is not um, the sort of activity of politics as either he or Arendt uh, understands it. Um, I just want to. Um, it's okay. I'll just conclude. Just a few minutes. Yes. Um, um, I just want to conclude by sort of um, stating sort of some of the sort of um, concerns about this. Now, one of the things that perhaps philosophers have um, uh, some claim to advantage in that sort of traditional view um, over this alternative view is that um, this represents the kind of force of um, of reason. This this is this is right thinking done by people who are trained to think uh, correctly about things. And so we should um, follow them in their lead. Um, and also, of course, the difficulties and dangers are um, um, multiplied, it seems, when we, when we sort of um, say that politics is about challenging each other's beliefs, challenging each other's kind of reasons for holding them, uh, and, and sort of engaging in a sort of um, agonistic way with each other's um, understandings. Um, and um, Arendt, uh, like in fact uh, uh, Albert Camus, um, uh, admits that this is um, something which we just have to accept as the cost of engaging in politics. The cost of not engaging in politics is much higher, she feels. Um, this is um, a, a sort of summary of a, a view that she, she, she um, has. Um, The, um, this is actually something that I thought of, particularly in the context of UKIP, but also in the context of um, the recent intervention uh, in um, politics uh, by um, who am I thinking of? The comedian uh, Russell Brand. Yeah, Russell Brand. <coughs> um, uh, observing the courage, um, the courage is a political virtue par excellence. It's the courage. Um, the point is here that there is no um, suffering in private. It is that the public remonstrance of suffering calls attention to itself and so requires a special courage to confront the physical danger that attaches to identifying with a contestable cause, which is the kind of thing that you imagine is happening. Um, the point uh, takes on added significance once we apply it to the contemporary world of revolutionary politics, public demonstrations and civil disobedience, all of which were of great sort of concern and interest to Arendt. Um, to become political is to threaten the convictions and complacency of others, calling forth often hostile reactions. It is to disturb the orderly routines of governance and often to risk imprisonment, deportation and even death. So there is a clear and you know, sort of, um, persistent cost and concern of an idea of politics as kind of discussion and debate, perhaps ranging more widely than typically is reported or um, participated in. But um, for 
uh, our internal handmess. Um, this is even like what happens when we sort of um, orientate ourselves properly to um, the practice of politics. And that will involve much less uh, of what um, philosophers have thought of as their contribution to the subject. Okay. Mark for a, a very intriguing talk, I have to say. Phew. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's hard work uh, following, but very, very interesting, I must say. Um, before we go into um, question time, just uh, uh, one or two announcements. Uh, some of us go to lunch at the, at the Pendrel Oak in High Holborn uh, after this session, so anyone who wants to do that, you're more than welcome to, to join us. Um, next week, uh, we have uh, Mr. so-called Mr. Ethical talking. Um, he's taken on HSBC, the accountants and the lawyers, I believe, um, and that's an ongoing uh, problem. And that's a very interesting one, which I hope to get to myself. Um, there is a, a feedback form here. If anyone feel, feels like feeding back information to the society, we're always interested to know what you think. Uh, how lousy the chairman was today, and how good the speaker was, uh, for sure. Um, the something else I was going to say. I can't remember. I missed out anything. I don't think so. Okay. This The the which one? The. Oh yes. Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll duck that one. <laughs> look look at our website. It's a very good website, www.conwayhall.org.uk. Superb website, and you should see that. It's got a lot of very interesting stuff on that. That's the best way, I think, to find out about Conway Hall. Um, just to remind people, there is a discussion group uh, going on uh, this afternoon, uh, led by Quentin in this case. Um, so we're into question and answer. Uh, yes, what do I miss? Uh, at least, you have to remind the chairman that we have a concert in the evening. Oh, right. This time, those are the concerts. Oh, right. <laughs> 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 it's the end of the season. It's the end of the season. Okay. And that's why I thought I was going to just remind you that uh, Barbara Smoker is 91 tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. Well, in anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> It would be nice yeah. to wish her many happy returns, but I think that's a bit optimistic when we're in the 91. We're having the big party when she's 100. Right, okay. Very good. Okay, uh, right, I think we uh, dive into. Um, I've got a lot of questions to ask uh, Mark. Sure, but I'll leave it to the floor to, to get in first. Uh, yes, the gentleman with his hand up. Um, I'm interested in the, the question of authenticity, which you mentioned in the context of Heidegger. Because for me, there's a, uh, there's a similarity be between politicians and famous philosophers, and that would be narcissism. Because you you have to have a need or will to, uh, to be recognized and to influence if you publish, if you openly speak, 
if you have opinions that become uh, debatable and public knowledge. And I wonder if, if Heidegger ever mentioned authenticity, not in relation to living in sync with nature, but in terms of living in sync with one's own recognition for the need to be important. Um, yeah, good question, actually. And I can I'll give you a sort of pertinent quote, I think. Um, um, the um, key distinction in hats that's useful to consider here is, is um, well, this is, we don't want to get too far into the sort of details of Heidegger kind of um, scholarship, but very broadly, his um, characterization of us is as, um, as he called it, das man. Um, um, and um, he says our particular relation to um, each other is often inauthentically characterized in terms of being led. Um, this is, I'll give you this quote. Um, um, we take pleasure and enjoy ourselves as they, um, which is the translation of here for death's men, and take pleasure. We read, see, and judge about literature and art as they see and judge. Likewise, we shrink back from the great mass as they shrink back. We find shocking what they find shocking. The they which is nothing definite, which are all, though not as the sun, prescribes the kind of being of everydayness, by which he means you know, just how things are for us most of the time. Um, and the suggestion is how things are for us most of the time in relation to each other is a sort of um, non-specific um, leading. Um, it's, you know, it's what they want. That's, you know, what, what do they think of that? You know, and you say that the, our basic orientation is, and he thinks this is inauthentic in some sense, um, because it cuts us off from thinking about our sort of own relation to the world, is through what um, we perceive or generally regard as, as, as thinking. Um, and it operates up in a very sort of um, interesting way, packed politically, when you consider that um, the, I mean, I, I've been sort of, I'm afraid I kind of do sort of follow politics quite sort of uh, uh, you know, carefully and, and, and looking at the comments on various websites, running the articles about the UK and problems with UK, it, it's a flash in the pan, it, nobody really believes anything that they say, they don't actually believe anything that they say either, um, it's just one man in a pint, you know, all of these kinds of things that are kind of, are tentatively responded to in comment sections. I know it's, you know, a very sort of limited survey comment sections of online newspaper websites, but um, it tends to be sort of, oh, you know, that's to disrespect the sort of basis on which we've made this decision to support them. And this is fundamentally the press closing ranks against um, an intruder um, to the sort of standard political discourse. And in a way, that's, you know, what is being invoked there is a different kind of day, the press, or the press and the political elite. Um, and it's this sort of problem of relating to those things um, that perhaps arguably many of these people, the sort of subjects that they're sort of making their comments is, is we, we ourselves have thought of doing something that you, the politicians, uh, are finding problematic. Well, that's just, you know, sort of a cost of allowing people to determine for themselves the nature of their um, their rulers or their sort of uh, representatives. Um, so I don't know if that's sort of broadly on the topic. I mean, my, my question was a, a radically different one. Uh, my question would be if if a conversation 
between a philosopher and a philosopher, a philosopher and a politician and a politician, and so on, if an authentic discussion wouldn't be, is your authentic position the opinion to, you put forward, or the narcissism you satisfy with it? Isn't that the real authenticity? Um, there could be, a, what do you mean, an element of skewing the sort of nature of the sort of positions that are being offered because that gets you sort of some validation because others listen to you. Mm -hmm. yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, there's a good deal of that, but I don't think it's a uniquely philosophical problem. I think, uh, but I think it's, it, it's a danger, particularly if philosophers perceive themselves as, as being regarded as, as, as sort of ex extraordinarily sort of strange sort of. Um, uh, you know, sort of thinkers or sort of ideas then if the idea somebody's going to listen to you, it's probably quite sort of reassuring. Yeah. Um, I mean, typically, whenever a philosopher's go on Newsnight, for example, it ends up with a kind of, was well, a certain amount of time I can remember it, um, Jeremy Paxman and Polly that sort of face uh, the two philosophers in saying, what on earth are you talking about and why are you saying it here? Uh, there is a danger that, you know, but this is a problem perhaps also um, for, I mean, that's one side, but the, um, the other side might be, um, if somebody wants to go and offer a sort of general position, um, so, so not necessarily that they're qualified as a philosopher, but they want to sort of talk generally about the nature of uh, our institutions, our sort of the relationship, it's very hard for that to actually have a place in political discourse. It tends to get sort of bumped down. Um, you know, the, the running order of programs like Newsnight, which are dominated by immediate and sort of specific political issues and problems, or what people have decided on. So, I think that's a good point, but I think it might be a, a sort of point that applies generally. I mean, anybody who wants to talk generally about the, the human condition or whatever it might be. Okay. We're looking for a young lady to speak now, I'm looking for a female perspective. Okay, then we have this gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the talk. Alex and Bronstein. And I am uh, uh, a politician, nor a philosopher, uh, not known in any way. But my point is the question of dialogue. Do people discuss the same thing when they use the same word? Uh, is there separation because people are working in different angles from what is a word and its meaning uh, to them. Uh, certainly on big projects, I have glossary. We all agree what a word means. Do philosophers share a glossary? Yeah, I think probably um, some do with some others. I think that's probably the best you can sort of say about it. The, um, the, the interesting idea about language here in relation to politics is that what Adonis does following that, he wants to claim that there's something general to the nature of communication between us all, as a, as a kind of, as a condition for it to happen. So words, if you like, get their meaning in terms of the possibility of agreement between us about what it is they mean. So we might initially, in our sort of contact with each other, in discussing the word like democracy, or discussing something like welfare, or um, health, have, um, you know, Saying, well, no, no, I mean, like, you think health is, you know, sort of a matter of running 10 miles a day and kind of eating sort of you know, um, organic yogurt. I think health is 
uh, a balanced diet and, and you know, sort of walking the dog every other day. You know, um, so there can be disagreement. And what Habermas wants to do is look, the reason why there can be disagreement is because there is the capacity for shared understanding. It's against the background of the capacity of shared understanding that disagreement becomes a possibility. Otherwise, we are literally sort of talking uh, past each other. Um, now, that can happen, I mean, in the sense that uh, there can be, as a result of a kind of a clarification of the idea of what it is we're concerned about, no obvious resolution in terms of practice. But um, it, it, it's a kind of move towards the possibility of a resolution in terms of practice if we can establish an understanding together about what it is uh, that we disagree about. Now, he's not claiming this is you know, sort of inevitable or you know, sort of very likely to happen in any of the more sort of intractable cases. But he is saying that um, it represents the sort of possibility of progress in politics um, in a way which alternatives, such as the view that I have my view and you have yours, and they are literally you know, incommensurable. They involve words which are that they might look similar and certain, but they have fundamentally different meanings because of the place they occupy within, say, your conceptual scheme, your way of thinking about the world. On that view, um, politics um, can't happen, and um, conflict is what replaces it. Now, uh, Abbas sort of wants to claim that um, um, that is not an accurate representation of the sort of nature of our interaction. Um, and that his, so what he argues about as a philosopher, in terms of his ideas about language and communication, um, does provide the possibility for um, moving continuously and with difficulty and with failures towards um, understanding. Um, so um, just to pick an example, the sort of um, the peace process in um, uh, Israel, uh, in Israel and Palestine, that is um, something which has got endless sort of uh, back sort of um, steps and, you know, sort of breakdowns and so forth. But the possibility of, um, of coming to an understanding um, is the background against which these sort of failures can be sort of understood as failures and also the opportunity of, of hope and all progress is maintained. It, we never finish with the process of discussing with each other, even if it looks like that process is incredibly difficult and incredibly risky. Um, in fact, what, what, what this broad sort of move, I suppose, it, it, it's called is discursive political theory. Um, because discourse is the essence of politics. Yes, young lady. Yes, you are. Right, I'm neither a politician nor a philosopher. Um, I was interested in Heidegger that he thought the way to go was to sit in a wood for two what, for a long time, all by himself, to make decisions that would affect the rest of the people without contact with them. Um, I'm thinking now uh, of uh, the effect of social media and you send comments in newspapers on, our, on websites. But it's now quite the opposite. Politicians can hear an awful lot out of philosophers. So, is this part of your discourse, discursive progression? Um, it, it, many people have um, written lots of words claiming it is. You know, this, is um, this is now uh, kind of increasingly at least potentially a discursive democracy. And they point out, for example, the ways in which very often um, a regime that's not interested in the views and opinions of its 
uh, its uh, population, um, acts to restrict access to those forms of social media that have come into being in fairly recent times. Um, it's something which um, is, in some sense, perhaps easier when you have a kind of pipe that you can turn off, um, rather than a kind of group of people sort of, you know, crossing each other on the street and so forth. But as an extension of the idea of community, I think broadly you can say it falls into two camps. Those who feel that social media is a sort of challenge and in some ways sort of cementing the kind of isolation that we have from each other, uh, which would be necessary for you know, meeting face to face and discussing, and those who see it as a kind of widening of that sort of, um, of that capacity and extending of it, a kind of improving of it in the sense of our ability to um, share and discuss about you know, sort of a whole host of things. Now, um, if you spend any time at all in discussion forums on any kind of website, um, you find that you know, the sort of often discussion breaks down. Um, and it depends on, on your view of, of that process. Really. Um, quite often, uh, people sort of uh, have a kind of uh, opinion which is uh, certainly not something which is agreed by it. Uh, everybody, and, and, and then the nature of the formulation of thought in disagreement is itself um, a clarification of, of your understanding of your own ideas. Um, and that, from having that point of view, is you know, the sort of public sphere in operation. It is us collectively engaged in decision making to some extent. The other thing to consider is the extent to which is decision making at all. Are we just being allowed to talk? to each other as a distraction from our exclusion from the relation between talk and action. Uh, that's certainly something that both Aaron and Catherine... Yes, Catherine's I can see that, that too, but say that part of politicians are sitting in their ivory towers and they have no idea what's going on and they don't listen to people. And we expect people to listen to us now, which are perhaps we didn't before. Well, I mean, I'm a great fan of um, the thick of it. And, um, uh, often it's the case that you know, sort of, um, the, the particular sort of um, point where Peter Mannion, the Conservative Minister, well, no, it's an MP at that point, um, his, his advisor suggests he should have a blog, uh, which he sort of then sort of completes, you know, sort of with, with details of his activities representing his constituents. Um, and at one point, as he's sort of reading all these kinds of very sort of unappealing descriptions of his lifestyle choices, um, Says, so have you met the public? They're horrible. Um, <laughs> and and there could be you know, a, a sense that you know, sort of, um, that there's mutual sort of fear and loathing between politicians and um, and those who are contributing to political blocks, uh, at least. Um, but the point also, I mean, as you both mentioned, you're not politicians. I mean, the point that both both Hadness and, and Aaron want to claim at least is, is that we are all politicians in the sense that we're all um, affected by and, and in some sort of form of hope can affect the political sort of decision making that uh, our world is, you know, sort of, um, well, I mean, that's arguable, <laughs> but they're saying it would be better if there was more of that. Okay, uh, yes, uh, Fiona. There's an interesting piece in yesterday's Times by Matthew Paris. Um, in or out, your your nightmare begins here. And he'd been to a conference where it says the, the organization whose partic participating partners were business and research groupings that appear to share a helpful view of Britain's place in the EU of 
they aimed for proper debate and vigorous minority of and a, a vigorous minority of the panel members were robust, robustly anti-EU. But he's come away from it feeling incredibly confused and really worried that this sort of discussion, which is going to get us nowhere, is going to go on for at least the next three years. Well, I mean, it, the, the thing about sort of the you know, sort of operation of politics as a kind of sharing of, of reasons for views that we hold is that, of course, you come into contact, bound to come into contact, is the claim that, that they make, but with people who, who radically disagree with us. Um, now, that isn't what, what is a claim they want to make, um, and this might not be so, so um, plausible, is that um, the um, act of coming into contact with others um, allows us to uh, develop our own understanding of the basis of our own ideas, and that's an improvement, if you like, individually, but also in the sort of quality of, of, of public discussion and debate. Now, that need not be so. There are risks, and it can be a sort of um, a difficult sort of um, thing, but the alternative might be uh, the kind of um, withdrawal of any kind of sort of view about self in relation to others at the point of decision-making in general, and that each of them would want to claim uh, offers a sort of vacuum, if you like, for others to come in and, and take all of that weight off our shoulders and do it for us. Um, now, if that's you know, how we end up, then um, whatever it, uh, sort of details of it, well, that would be various, but we'll um, run the risk that it will be whoever managed to negotiate their way into a position of control and power under those conditions, as it, as it was the case. I mean, National Socialists became the um, government under conditions of a democratic and electoral process, which they manipulated in order to bring about that position which allowed them to, um, to cast it to one side. That is, um, if you like, the alternative, um, as they see it, to uh, you know, perhaps confusing, um, but possibly an actively and positively confusing sort of um, discussion and debate. Um, I mean, we will, the level of political discourse is variable, um, and so it won't always be the case. But, but people that haven't had something point out that our common understanding of our common problems in relation, for example, to the environment have certainly developed and improved as a result of our ability to talk together about what it is we're trying to do, what it is we're actually doing, and the, and, and the difference between those two. So it, it has got some positive elements in practice um, according to the way they're thinking about it. Okay, yes, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, you talked about the relationship between Hannah Arendt and uh, her professor. Uh, uh, can you tell us something about the relationship of one of other students, Charles Malik, who did his doctorate under Heidegger, who later became one of the authors of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, something which possibly I think I'll be one of the Do you know anything more about this? Uh, short answer, no, I don't know anything more about that. And that is news. Um, uh, as to the United Nations, uh, uh, yes, there, there is a difficulty that um, Heidegger would have with, um, um, at, the, at the earlier stage, 33, 34, with um, international, or in fact, um, international um, organizational forms. For him, this there is a kind of um, inherent, a natural sort of relation that we have 
to our sort of setting. I mean, imagine <coughs> the time is, is one where there's much less kind of engagement with uh, others, you know, sort of across the world. But nevertheless, this was something that all, in fact, of the people that uh, I looked at first um, uh, have, have thought. That there's something unique about being German. There's something unique about being, uh, well, I don't know, English. Um, and that the, the um, constitution of the state um, if it's going to be, if you like, appropriate, should reflect that, um, that naturalness. Now, um, an international organisation that's trying to organise things along very general sort of principles, Bill of Rights or whatever it might be, um, a Declaration of Human Rights, is, um, for him, um, taking us away from what we ought to be moving towards, which is this kind of quasi-mystical sort of relationship to our, to our soil, to our kind of homeland. Um, the later Heidegger changes his view, but only and slightly changes his view because he thinks that the special nature of the relationship now is between the German language and um, the language in which philosophy is conducted. Um, so he drops all the claims for being able to sort of um, specify Germanness, if you like, um, and instead says that, that, um, that uh, the language, because he's, he's not, not no longer, of course going to say anything at all that might be construed as political. Um, uh, the whole point and purpose of, of um, philosophical thought now is towards uncovering this deep um, connection that we can still maintain to the notion of existence in general, with being, um, with a capital B. Um, so any kind of international loop is um, anathema to him. Um, Habermas, just as a contrast, um, thinks that, you know, that the, the only uh, chance we have of um, meeting the kinds of problems that we find ourselves with is an increasing internationalism. Um, he's only a very sort of um, keen proponent of a, uh, expanding sort of principles of democratic participation to the international stage. Um, let's pick a good example of that. A, a former pupil of his, um, um, well, follower of his, um, was Oscar Fischer, the German uh, foreign minister, um, in the run-up to the um, Second Ebola uh, War. And he was um, debating with Donald Rumsfeld, the um, uh, pros and anti-positions with regard to invasion. And um, Rumsfeld is essentially addressing the audience as somebody who's telling them what to think. Uh, so that, that if there is this evidence, it's clear, this is what we need to do, this is how it will work, this will be in sort of, you know, I mean, you know, from really now and um, week, really. But, um, but that's what he was proposing. And, and Oscar Fischer interrupted in a very sort of have an action way and said, Excuse me, you're acting as if you know, what you're doing is, is instructing us, but we're here because we haven't yet decided what to do. You're not here to tell us what to do, you're here to discuss giving your reasons why you think a certain course of action is preferable to another. Now, that is an example of what Habermas would prove of, if you like, on the international stage. But on that occasion, of course, uh, perhaps no good came of it. Um, I'm not sure Rumsfeld goes in for sort of um, careful reconsideration of the basis for his own views, but um, didn't on that occasion. Yes, Joe. Okay. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the question. I attended the German Historical Institute last Thursday. And it was a uh, uh, lecturer from Berlin University on National Socialism. And I noticed how, uh, how much interest there was from people on the subject of self-evident reason. 
The question I ask you, is there anything like a manifesto for the National Socialism, which would include uh, the philosophy, the associated philosophy of uh, National Socialism, uh, in, in terms of uh, defined points like the manifesto of the Labour, uh, Liberal and Conservative Party, where they're out for an election? Um, I mean, the, the basic problem of um, that form of table is a kind of politics of, of opposition. So you don't need to say what you believe yourself because you just need to point out how horrible everything everybody else thinks it is. Um, and that you, you kind of succeed on the basis of everybody noting that um, you're right in your assessment of their failures. Um, so the tendency had been, I mean, National Socialism did have a variety of um, ideologues and um, those who but there was, you know, sort of um, no um, consistency of presentation or uh, of anything else because it, it didn't matter. They weren't they weren't oriented towards telling people the truth to allow them to form a belief. They were interested in telling them what they needed to tell them so that they acted in a way which enabled them to gain power. And that means that you can tell them uh, whatever you need to do that. I mean, just as a as an example of this, um, the. Um, um, Nazis were, of course, um, by sort of, um, well, often noted uh, kind of uh, expert sort of propagandists, um, Goebbels particularly, of course, and um, they um, very quickly uh, identified the value of undermining morale of um, uh, people in, uh, this case in particular, in France, by um, leafleting them um, with false information about how um, the sort of forces were sort of uh, dealing with each other and what the kind of state of the war was, what the plans were in the next sort of week and what have you. And um, uh, because that's, that was the way that their kind of sense of public communication worked. You, 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 you don't say to people, uh, you know, well, we want to persuade you by the force of our argument. <laughs> they say, we want you to believe these kinds of things to be true, so you will put us in a position where we can enact what we know to be true. Um, um, having said that, I mean, the, the, the Nazi sort of ideologues um, are enormously kind of various and confused, uh, in just the same way as the sort of Nazi sort of activities of war production, if they were completely scattered. You know, um, Rosenberg, who was the main sort of um, ideologue alongside Himmler, um, was obsessed by sort of the idea of, of, of um, uh, you know, reconnecting to sort of the Aryan. Um, Pure race, you know, which ultimately came from Atlantis, um, uh, and, and you know, they were both sort of um, senior members of the Thule cult, which was a, a kind of cult which um, the main sort of I think, uh, spirit mediums were um, in sort of spirit medium contact with uh, the Aldebarian system. I think now, you know, when, when you've got that as the basis for your kind of claim about what needs to happen, you know, in organising your society. Um, Wow, you've got a kind of, um, you know, you say, well, why should we do this? Well, because um, the spirit medium in contact with the Aldebarians, um, it's all this was the way to go. Um, you, you can't really, there's not much of a basis for agreement there, but nor, nor did they really care, uh, because you're, you're never going to be told that, you're going to be told something else, you know, whatever you need to hear. Gentlemen, green, yes. yes. Thank you very much.
much. I'm both a uh, philosopher and a politician. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dare I ask which political party do you support? Not you, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just a couple of comments, uh, and then yeah, I've got a question. Um, yeah, so Heidegger obviously has this philosophy where he talks a lot about authenticity and authenticity. That's been sort of quite popular uh, sort of concept, you know, harking back to, to thine own self be true and this sort of thing. And I like what Habermas has to say about we get to know our world through intersubjectivity, through sharing the world. Um, I guess um, my, yeah, my question is to do with kind of uh, where to find discursive practices, healthy discursive practices. I'm on the side of the camp that doesn't believe that leaving comments on the bottom of a website is um, a responsible and active engagement in politics. I feel like it lacks sort of participation, my embodiment, taking any risks. I can easily renege on whatever I've had to say. Um, I might flit around between different websites, but it all might happen from my laptop and, and sofa. Um, I guess, you know, one of my, my struggles that I find is where to find a space to be involved, where to find a space to speak. Um, we've had the, the, the um, elections now, which has almost carried on this authenticity, inauthenticity divide, which we see in UK, the authentic British person being white, blah, 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 looks like this, drinks these beers, the inauthentics being sort of everyone else. And I guess my question would be, sort of, where are the spaces to participate in politics if the thick of it is somewhat accurate in terms of these politicians who are estranged from from um, the masses, the people, the herd, whatever, and, and it's kind of a, a bureaucratic exercise. Where can people that don't want UKIP, even don't want other political, mainstream political parties, oh, where? Can I on the street? That's what to do it on the street. Maybe it's on the street, I guess yes. that's my question. You know, in, do, in, are we still in a time where people do go onto the street and march and protest? Is that voice going to be heard, or where are the spaces to to speak these days and to feel heard? Well, okay, thank you. That's a, um, I think um, it's the origin of a lot of my sort of interest in having that too. I um, put my thesis on the political theory and political practice, particularly sort of radical political theory and practice, and I came here a long time ago to the Anarchist Book Fair to to conduct interviews with people who were activists at that time in the sort of Newbury Bypass and um, uh, other sort of um, uh, activist protest movement to sort of uh, find out something about the kind of, um, motivation and interaction between different groups within that movement as a whole and so forth. And the problem I came here and gave out lots of flyers, and everybody thought, uh, he, he must be a policeman or something from a, because the only contact I got was somebody who I could contact with. So there's a good deal of Concern generally that, that even if there is a space, that space is being identified as potentially problematic by authorities who want to engage in some form of restriction of that activity. 
um, or at least observation of it with an eye to the possibility. Um, and the answer, of course, I suppose, is and this was also why I was interested in Foucault and what he says about power. Um, and the broad thing is, I suppose, that power is a kind of you know, a circulatory sort of um, concept like you know, money in an economy. Um, the potential for somebody to, to maintain and, and establish complete well, yeah, control of the organisation of the system it is um, um, defeated because you know, the, the more that they try, the, the more they kind of will take their eye off some other element. So the question is, you know, where do you find it? And the answer is, well, you, you know, where you can make it, perhaps. But um, insofar as you're oriented towards trying, then you're oriented in a you know, appropriate way to achieve that. Um, but there are no guarantees, of course, and there are no specific identifiable sources because it's so easy for the sort of um, model of interaction that we sort of have as uh, dominantly in countries like this, um, to mainstream it, to make it kind of, um, you know, sort of understandable in sort of general terms, which then sort of allow it to be um, assimilated. You know, to some extent, the Green Party, um, uh, which I used to be involved in a long time ago, was, um, you know, sort of in, as it became more attended to, um, they then had lots of policies and everything which they conducted for, you know, sort of extensive exercises in, in, in Together, but the more the, 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 more the sort of the, the politicization and the kind of professionalization of politics came into play, um, and that's um, very sort of um, uh, difficult. But I mean, I've got an example. I mean, I was, I, after I've been involved in Greens, I was also involved in the same with a friend of the Earth Group in um, Trafford, in South Manchester, in fact, and um, I had a lot of difficulty in meeting politicians to discuss issues, green issues. Very difficult to kind of um, to, um, to kind of, uh, you know, everybody was too busy to see us, or we got somebody who sort of had absolutely no interest in speaking to us, we were just politely listening before. Okay. Except for the local conservative associations, who were all actually the most welcoming and most attentive of them all. Now, who would have thought that? I didn't. Um, but that was the case. Yeah. And, and so that is a surprising place to find the possibility of discourse. Um, and so I suppose you have to just keep looking. Um, but just one last point on that is the, um, I tweeted um, this thing, somebody tweeted me the other day, um, sorry to use social media, but the, um, um, it, was, it was a kind of a house here, sort of this, this sort of block of flats with various people in, in the windows sort of complaining about sort of, I don't know, sort of the situation in, um, uh, I can't remember where it was now, let me go with that. But, but yeah, same part of everything, that's outrageous, you know, this is crazy, we've got to do something, why can't we just do something? And then sort of, sort of, I know, hashtag that. And then, you know, that, that was kind of activism. You, you kind of, so there is a danger of thinking, I've, I've done my bit. You know, I've, I've tweeted about it. Which, of course, I then, that's all I did. I just tweeted it. That's very interesting. So I, I've always had the thought that I can establish um, a, a new political party. This has been my driving ambition ever since I was about 21, uh, which I believe would attract at least 80% of the population. Now, you would argue, and you would discuss that I really should give this idea up. It's, it's mad. I don't stand a hope in hell in our current day to be able to achieve anything. Would you say that's correct? Um, I think there's a danger... Because our, our political spectrum is, is this big, isn't it? We've got this much on offer. There, I mean, there are all kinds of additional questions then about sort of the route of representation. You know, I mean, what would, what would dissuade you? I mean, of course, the used to be cases that you don't have somebody and say, Oh, you know, this is terrible. I'm talking about the Greens sort of period now. 
Um, in terrible look at the, the, the environmental difficulties, we need to sort of uh, consume much less and organise ourselves more effectively and you know, use less power or use power to generate it differently and so forth. And everybody says, yes, no, that all sounds very good and important and is significant, everything, but it's a wasted vote for you. Um, now, in a way, you know, now, my party is much, much more than that. Oh, is it? So it's <laughs> <laughs> What's its name? No, it doesn't have a name. It's always the first question. The, the difficulty with, you know, sort of, as, as happening, I suppose, with the UK government, gaining sort of increasing sort of um, uh, attention from people is, um, you know, I mean, Russell Brand earlier was saying we need to have a more engaged politics and so forth. Well, this is what he's got, arguably. It's just the wrong kind of engagement from his point of view. Um, and that, but that has to be the, the risk. I mean, it, 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 we are unlikely to be able to create a sort of democratic sort of arrangement for a country of this size um, uh, that would um, be anything other than a representational democracy. Um, and so we have to consider, though, seriously the way in which we organise that representation in sort of process. Um, I, on that point, though, it's very interesting that I was listening to the sort of roundup of all the minor parties in the run up to the local elections and the Euros. And, um, um, so they've established already sort of, um, I think they've, they've had the Greens, and they've been BNP, um, who of course did do very well. Um, and then they said that they had somebody on from um, the EMP, which is the English National Party. Um, and the person said all the time bitterly complaining about this ridiculous kind of Britishness that the British National Party talking about. What about the English? You know, so, um, um, and I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's a very sort of niche. Their line of attack was the BNP vote. So you think, well, that's very sort of um, specific. So I have no idea how you do with the parties <coughs> and get more details. Okay, okay. But the short answer is, is I should give up. No, no, no. Don't give no. up. Uh, Terry, yes. Yes, this isn't so much a question. This isn't so much a question as a bit of useless information. <laughs> I was the secretary of the National Secular Society for 17 years. That's not the useless. When I was there, there was a file of letters from Heidegger to a prominent secularist of the 30s and 40s called Joseph Mackay. He started off in the Catholic Church, in fact, known as Father Joseph Mackay. But whether that still exists, I don't, don't think it the present regime of the NSS has no idea of archives, but there was a valuable uh, file when I was there. Could do you tell me what, 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 what content was there? What, what was he writing about? Sure, they were written in German. Ah. <laughs> no, I studied them in great detail. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Okay, yes, the uh, gentleman at the back. Thank you very much. We've really just come to the philosophy that my limit in the country, right? And I'm right with it, we have great Britain, Britain, and I always think we've got the Trump to the left of Italia, but most English in there are Texas, well, here, and we've got the England, uh, also, which come from the Anglo Saxon. And I just wonder if I'm right in assuming we call, we're from what goes with Britannia, and we call the Italian of the Empire, and England with the Anglo Saxon people. Nothing I can think of off the top of my head, except that um, the first volume in the history of Britain is written by, um, or co-written by R.G. Collingwood, who was a 
I'm noted sort of philosopher of the. I think it's true. Yes. Um, and I think he thought that they were sort of um, elements of, of the kind of you know, the, the longevity that's created by this sort of um, occupancy of the, um, the country by a, a, a changing but still in some sense sort of historically continuous group. But I, I don't know more about it than that, I'm afraid. Okay, let's have the gentleman at the back, really at the back now, the purple shirt is is there, a, is there a parallel between Heidegger under the Nazis and British philosophy under militarism? Um, when, when I gave this talk, a version of this talk, a few weeks ago, um, um, the, the, some people at least were very clear that they thought that there was. Particularly, of course, what they're saying is that um, this is um, you know, the, the kind of combination of Hayek's um, political economic analysis and uh, Robert Nozick's political philosophy. Um, Robert Nozick in 1974 as a called Anarchy, State and Utopia, which argues against the idea of a, kind of, of a state that actively involves itself in organising uh, the sort of welfare elements of the state in order to kind of um, achieve some general benefit. His claim was that the means by which that could be achieved was a form of, um, of theft by the state by taking from people what they um, would um, otherwise have as a legitimate result of their labours. Now, um, people thought that there was some persuasive element of that argument um, which filtered through its politics. Now, in a way, there's, there's relatively little um, uh, demonstration, let's say, that um, there is a kind of clear link between political philosophy of that kind and political movements or activity or beliefs of the more sort of general sort of um, practice sort of based law constructing um, state group reviewing kind. So uh, I, I think that's probably, you know, ideas are in play in politics, but how they are in play and where they have their life um, I don't think that we, I need to see more to sort of suggest the nature of that interaction. And, and depending on that, would be um, you, know, you say, yes, it was influential and it wasn't quite influential. Of course, um, going back to your point, a political philosopher who's been talked about as the most influential political philosopher is going to think, yeah, good for me, um, to a certain extent. Um, I once had a conversation years ago with Peter Singer, who's very famous as a um, moral philosopher and a political philosopher. Um, when he arrived at Princeton, he was, you know, busloads of um, fundamentalist Christians sort of were um, were being sort of shipped into the campus to kind of, you know, sort of protest heavily about his involvement in the institution. Um, and he was very dismissive about that, saying, "Well, it's just rent them on, and they disappeared in a few weeks." Um, um, but that's the kind of influence that you know you might have. In the sort of specifically political um, sphere, and I then sort of was talking to him about politics and the general sort of interest that there might be or might not be in political philosophy. Um, and he, his response to me at that point was, "Well, um, I don't have any problem attracting students um, to my political philosophy classes." Um, I, I was thinking to myself that, "Well, yeah, you're a world famous academic at you know, sort of one of the most prestigious universities in the world. The fact that you're not having any." Problem attracting students to those classes doesn't mean to say that there's a 
general sort of disinterest about the nature of that relationship. And uh, I think there is um, arguably um, less interest now than perhaps there was in the 70s. But I don't know. Okay, uh, one or two last questions now. Uh, come on. Uh, I would want to, uh, to question uh, your, you know, what you are doing, but is it possible to be a philosopher and politician at the same time? Um, like they have two, I would have said that they, have, they will have two distinct roles. Uh, politicians might be compromised, as might be the democracy, or the libertarianism, or the communism, or, and uh, the philosophers, uh, they should have very, you know, they should be above in a way. And they, They've got to accept they are not going to be, uh, you know, uh, with another philosophy is going to come, you know, and so, yeah. Yes. So, can you be the Yes, um, you can, but the way in which you do that depends on which sort of philosophy you sort of, um, I suppose, to listen to. And um, Arendt um, thought that, and we went to the end of her life, really, that um, if you're going to be a political theorist, if you're going to just think about the nature of politics now, um, that's incompatible with thinking about the sort of um, the general sort of um, constitution of ourselves in relation to our world, which philosophers have traditionally um, uh, engaged in. So she thinks there are two distinct activities. Um, arguably, Isaiah Berlin, although he didn't get on at all with him, <coughs> agreed that um, he said he wasn't clever enough, which is definitely not something he believed, uh, not clever enough to do philosophy, so he ended up doing political theory and political history instead. Um, that again suggests that you either take one set of understandings of, a, of, a, of what you're doing, or the other. Um, Adam Max is different. Um, he thinks that um, if we have a responsibility to each other as citizens of a community um, to participate in as active a way as possible in discussions about what we're trying to achieve together. <coughs> Um, as a philosopher, we have a sort of different kind of responsibility to think in most general terms about the, for him, the conditions under which we can uh, undertake that inquiry. So he makes quite a sort of sharp distinction. He is both a philosopher and a politician, very sort of well sort of listened to and respected in that domain. But the two are quite distinct facets of his intellectual and practical um, life. Um, Okay, if you could just have two last questions. Uh, uh, yes. Do you know, can you tell me anything about uh, Heidegger's meeting with Lacan? They both met and Lacan refuted and demolished Heidegger. And I can't. Because, thank you. Okay, that's a very Lacan, good question. Lacan is a close book. Yeah, okay, so we've got another question from anyone. You've done one already. Yes. Yes. Would we do better to dispense with career politicians, or would we do better to ban politicians from other careers? I wonder who you were thinking of. <laughs> uh, I mean, sometimes that's always the kind of current, say, people arguing that the problem is that um, what, it, what it is to be a professional politician now is, is kind of so narrowly constrained that there's a level of experience of the world more generally is sort of, um, deeply problematic. You know, if, if you go straight from doing PPE uh, to working in a think tank to representing a kind of a constituency that you don't live near, that you then sort of move on for, for, from that to be a sort of minister, um, how much sort of sense or uh, sort of the range and difficulties of, of, of living uh, can you have? Um, uh, I'd like to do something. Plato's philosophy. 
Um, but Plato's philosophy, yeah, I mean, uh, it used to be said, I've heard it sort of years ago now, and the time has moved on, that the kind of, the sort of, uh, the political class represented by the civil service was the kind of point at which the philosopher kings were all, uh, and, and, and the difficulties, you know, yes, prime minister, of just allowing the sort of ministers to feel like they're doing something useful and, and making decisions so, forth, so that the real business of government efficiency could be sort of um, progressed. Now, that obviously is sort of um, something which being quite thick of it, sort of suggesting is now the sort of role of the special advisor, who is um, you know, not a representative of any kind of um, group of people, but is like, hugely influential in that sort of um, in that setting. Um, the difficulty of, of uh, some wide sort of um, rejection of professional politics is how do you sort of um, prevent it sort of um, tending to be a, a sort of uh, setting for people who can afford in many different ways to give themselves over um, to, to that kind of um, activity. Um, and also difficulties um, in organising something more participatory at the level of generality which we're sort of running the sort of nation state. Um, uh, there's a very good book actually sort of discussing this from a sort of point of view, sort of plausibility, very plausibility by um, David Held, um, called Models of Democracy. Um, uh, the problem would be sort of what model to replace the sort of professional politician sort of um, involving kind of representative democratic process with. Um, uh, hard to see, really. But maybe what would you prefer? What I would prefer is that um, people should just do exactly what I say all the time. Leave <laughs> 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 it up to me because uh, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> Okay, and uh, one very last question. Someone who's not answered the question before. Uh, yes, I think you probably are. The, so the last question of the session. Thank you, Ron. You mentioned in your talk that um, Heidegger was uh, favourably disposed towards national socialism and that Habermas was a member of the Hitler Youth. Which, with the benefit of Morphe's hindsight, is quite a big ethical mistake to make. Um, given that they're involved in uh, political philosophy and not metaphysics, what view do you take about that? Um, well, the, the things about the. Quite uh, a short answer, wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. Well, very briefly, Heidegger thought really that, that sort of political philosophy was metaphysics. I think when it comes down to it, it's the correct general description of the nature of being in general and human being in relation to it. Um, uh, the sort of. Um, Given the fact that Heidegger is as a you know sort of the most senior academic in his institution, um, I know that was an appointment by those people and he wouldn't have got it if he hadn't been willing to go along. Um, the fact that he made that position um, uh, his own um, is um, much more compromised, I would say, than the fact that, that Habermas, you know, sort of like goes to school one day and is handed a kind of, you know, the badge which says, or uniform which says, I, I'm a national socialist. Um, can I read you out one thing, though, about the Heidegger um, point, which I think you will find This must be the final useful. declaration. Um, uh, the... Um, this is this is sort of Heidegger late on. This is the problem with Heidegger, not not so much the kind of confused early period, if you like, um, which you know, Bandler and everybody 
claimants would have been very mixed up and so forth. But this is a considered opinion by him about his earlier sort of stance uh, after the Second World War. Okay. Um, so agriculture is now a mechanised food industry. As for its essence, it's the same thing as the manufacture of corpses in the gas chambers and the death counts. The same thing, same thing as the blockades and reduction of countries to famine. The same thing as the manufacture of hydrogen bombs. Heidegger is a metaphysical position, if you like, thinks of um, the nature of being in general. So all of those forms of being are equal for him in, in significance, which is precisely um, the reason why nobody should pay any attention to Heidegger's political views. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.